indigenous people have the knowledge. And if we work together with scientists, we can come up with so much more than what only Inuit know or only scientists know. It's a great tool. It's about moving the center of gravity in Canada a little bit further north, and there's many levels at which that needs to happen, and one of those is the facilities and capacity to do research in the north, so that we don't just visit the north and go south again. That's David Hick, chief scientist at the Canadian High Arctic Research Station in Cambridge Bay, Nunavut, along with his colleague Jeannie Ahaluak, director of strategic communications at CHARS. They are among the many voices you'll hear in this first of three episodes from my recent trip to Cambridge Bay, here on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Before we get to this episode, I just want to give you a quick reminder that the second annual RCGS Polar Plunge is taking place on March 6th. It's a great cause, helping the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and the continued work of this podcast so we can keep bringing you stories like the one we have today. Your donations will also help compel several otherwise sensible Canadians like Chief Perry Bellegarde and Catherine McKenna to jump into a freezing cold lake with me on March 6. The screams alone will be worth it. Trust me. You can donate by visiting rcgs.org forward slash polar plunge. So I recently had the privilege of spending a week in Cambridge Bay, Nunavut. It was the first time for me above the tree line in Canada. It was a wonderful and eye-opening experience. This is Victoria Island on the Northwest Passage, near where the Franklin Expedition disappeared so long ago. There's been an Inuit community here for millennia. It was early December when I was there. I saw the last sunrise of the year. The short period of purple twilight every day was gorgeous. The windchill dropped to minus 55 one day, and the people were warm and welcoming. Today's episode will be spent at the Canadian High Arctic Research Station, or CHARS, as everyone calls it in Cambridge Bay. It's a $250 million science facility, which opened in 2019, part of a federal government effort to shift Arctic research to the Arctic. Its main building is striking, faced in copper and glass, rising out of the flat white tundra. Inside are multiple state-of-the-art science and tech laboratories. There's also a field maintenance building with a garage, workshops, equipment storage, and a dive center, which we'll get to in a bit. Jennifer Hubbard is the president of Polar Knowledge Canada, which runs this facility. She lives in Cambridge Bay. I tell people who haven't been here, I I Mm. feel like we have complex labs inside of a museum. Like, it's, it's just a... It's fascinating to see how we integrated, how the architects integrated culture into the building, in the floors, in the designs, and how the building was built. So, mm-hmm. so that piece is—it's uh, hard to describe for someone who's who hasn't been here, mm-hmm. even if they see our video and our online, all that. But I mean, being here really kind of makes you realize. Yeah. Well, when you walk in, there's Inuit artwork in the floor. In the like, floor, in the, the windows, and, you know, engraved in the windows. Yeah, and there's um, like amazing wall hangings yeah. that are hand-done locally, and yeah. And and it was all uh, local and, and regional artists that were commissioned, and it feels like it belongs here. My name is Jeannie Echaklok. I'm the Director of Strategic Communications. When the federal government was building the facility, we worked with 
the commission at the time on what we what the elders wanted to see in the facility. Mm-hmm. And one of the things the elders highly recommended was the cultural room. They wanted a room that they'd be able to use um, for cultural events to show that Inuit live in the north, are a part of the north, have been here for thousands of years, and they wanted their own designated room. So they designed the cultural room, which is, if you look at it, it's it's round, it's kind of like a dome style, which represents an igloo. It's a beautiful spot. Um, when Minister Vandal came here for a visit, we had hired a couple girls to come in to do them do some throat singing, mm. and the echo and the sounds in that room was unbelievable. Lovely. I was just in awe. That sense of being a part of this community is a clear goal for this research station. A large percentage of its staff are from Nunavut, including the field staff, who are all Inuit women and vital to facilitating the research that happens out on the tundra and sea ice. And fully half of Polar Knowledge Canada's staff live and work in the Arctic. Jeannie Ahalowak was mayor of Cambridge Bay when Charles was being built. Her job now is to blend the research station with her community. Like I'd be traveling and people would say to me, you have a beautiful facility, you have the Canadian High Arctic Research Station, but what do they do? Mm. Who's there? Who's the board? Who's Who are your employees? We have no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that Polar Knowledge would like to do in our, strate- in our strategic communications is to... Um, educate and inform community members and all of Canada exactly what Polar does, the type of work we do. And like people asked, who are our board members? Who are our president? And who are the staff that work here? And what does Polar plan to do to keep the communities informed, keep them, let them know exactly what's happening in in, in the north, especially because of climate change, mm-hmm. what's happening to the animals, what's happening to the land, what's happening to the nuna and the water and the ice. And one of the things that I've always heard people say and elders say um, years ago, like 15, 20 years ago, so many people came up here. Um, no one knew who they were, but they were doing all this research. And right collecting scientific data and interviewing people. And people finally said, we're tired of being researched. We want to be a part of the research. We know this area. We know our land. We know where and when people should be able to travel on the ice or when it's a good time to be out on the lakes. And we're the knowledge holders of the North with with the type of research and that's going on in the North, we can help you. Mm-hmm. So what Polar would like to do is take that scientific knowledge and traditional knowledge and come up with a common goal to solve some of the issues that the North is seeing. And it's, it's a powerful tool. Yeah. I mean, it can be a powerful tool. I mean, we know that 
um, we've had explorers come up north and um, because they didn't use traditional knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've lost people during expeditions and but the Inuit and the people who live here are the best knowledge holders of the north. So what Polar would like to do is use traditional knowledge and use scientific knowledge so that we can keep people informed of what's going on in the north. Mm-hmm. Why is the ice so thin? Why are we losing 15, 20 years ago, we could have caribou walking right in town right? or even right in our backyard. And today there's, there's nothing. Why? Right. I mean, the scientists know um, the biological parts of why. But Inuit also have knowledge as to why. Yeah. And if we work together with scientists, we can come up with so much more than what only Inuit know or only scientists know. It's a great tool. My name is David Hick. I'm the chief scientist and executive director of programs at Polar Knowledge Canada, and I'm based here in Cambridge Bay at Chars. When people come here, and they come here from all over the world, I'd say about a third of our uh, researcher days are international uh, scientists, and that's by design. Um, but, uh, but people come here because they're interested in getting out on the land, on the water, under the ice, into the, you know, uh, seeing what's going on in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things that take place outside of uh, th- this physical facility, yeah. but uh, within sort of arm's reach mm-hmm. of, of, of chars as well. Yeah. And then people can bring back collections and, and things that they do in the field and, and work with them here. We have all the sort of modern laboratory toys that you need to, to do many, many types of science. So I think of it more as kind of a, it's an attractor. It's a place where people can come and stage from, mm-hmm. but also return to without going south. Again. Yeah. And what, so, I mean, as a, as a scientist yourself, as a researcher yourself, what, what is the advantage of that? Well, there's really several advantages to being able to do that. One is um, we try to make the time that people have in the field or conducting their research, less about survival and more about focusing on the research. So the type of support we can provide, whether it's shelter or expertise or access to the tools and equipment that make that possible, means that people can focus more on on the research that they're doing. It also means they can stay for a little bit longer. And that allows for uh, different types of research over longer periods of time across seasons or across years, but also strengthens the opportunity for interactions with the community. And because we're a reasonably large facility, we can house 50 people, up to about 50 people at any one time. Uh, there's a lot of synergies with different research groups that are doing different things, but occupying the same pace, same place at the same time. And it's that cross-fertilization of expertise and ideas and and, you know, moments, not just the moments in the workplace, but because people are living together, sharing a, a living space in, in the triplexes, that there's a lot of other con- conversations and interactions that take place around field stations. Yeah. No, oh, amazing. Yeah. The alternative is going back to your own 
That's right. academic setting in your own yeah. silo, effectively, right? And yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's about it's about moving the center of gravity in Canada a little bit further north. Yeah. And there's many levels at which that needs to happen, and mm-hmm. one of those is the facilities and capacity to do research mm-hmm. in the north, yeah. so that we don't just visit the north and go south again, but to be able to. And you know what? This is a new facility. We're still in the process of commissioning many of the spaces, of finishing the finer construction details Mm -hmm. that makes it all work. Uh, Only a couple of years into this, interrupted with COVID. Right. um, There's still a lot of of opportunity to shape the way that that CHARS is used to support different types of research. Now, we have things in-house, but we also have a lot of flexibility to support groups from the north, from Canada, from anywhere else that have specific requirements for the type of projects they'd like to do, and we can help to support that. Remember I mentioned that dive center? Chris Arco has one of the more fascinating jobs here. He takes scientists, researchers, both Inuit and those from farther away, on dives into the Arctic Ocean. The water is cold, sometimes below zero because of the salt content. But the scenery down there can be stunningly beautiful which is where our conversation started. Uh, Jill Heinert is one of our explorers and residents, and I know from her work up here that the, the underwater world is incredibly rich up here. It actually. sure is. And, yeah. and you know what? It, no different than the Caribbean. Uh, when you go diving in the Caribbean, the uh, guides there are taking you to see the best stuff. And similarly, uh, I know where to go in the Caribbean where it's flat and sandy and boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, up here, um, uh, it's harder to find, but there are some absolute treasures. And in my time here, I've been kind of uh, cataloging and building a collection of uh, dive material. I'm now at the point where I'm starting to be able to piece together and interpret a combination of nautical charts and current charts and that. And, and I know, I'm starting to know where to go to find the great stuff. Okay. So t- take us to the great stuff. What are we, what are you seeing? Down when there? I say that, well, so first of all, colors galore, the kind of colors that you would think are in the Caribbean, uh, but they're here. And, um, then you're starting to get into some, some of the real indicators of exciting stuff is uh, what we call calcareous algae, mm-hmm. which is algae that instead of just being a soft tissued organism deposits calcium, kind mm-hmm. of like corals do. Um, I think I have found, I need to go back and retrieve a small tissue sample for DNA analysis, an actual hard coral up here in the diveable shallows. That's a pretty rare thing. Uh, but then there's soft corals galore and all sorts of invertebrate organisms. Uh, so are these living corals then? Or? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You don't think of that up here at all. Well, well and the, the soft corals are just spectacularly colored. Uh, and I mean, they live just on the very edge of the photonic zone where we have light coming in. Ah, oh, that must be amazing. So, and in terms of then actual sea life, like what are you seeing in the water? I would say the most interesting things are running into the larger mammals. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 Seals are just curious about what's going on in their environment and they'll come and they'll visit us. Uh, I have a small armada of remotely piloted submarines that I uh, operate and they just love those. they're, They're bright lights, which they don't see underwater. They're strange engine sounds that they've never heard before, the thrusters, the propellers. Right. And, uh, uh, they don't act in a very aggressive manner. They just want to see what's going on with those. So that's a neat encounter. Um, I've had the 
absolute privilege of diving with narwhal here. Being underwater with narwhal is, is as close as you'll get to diving with unicorns. Oh, amazing. <laughs> but I'm, I'm more interested in the weird life. Um, there's a kind of, uh, or, or there's an organism called a crinoid. Uh, or a uh, basket star or a feather star. Oh, they're basket related. stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're related to starfish. And they're just the most exotic things I've seen. I mean, if there's an alien form of life on Earth, that's them. David Hick is not just an administrator. He's also an active Arctic scientist whose research is increasingly on the impacts of climate change. Temperatures here are rising at a rate six times faster than the rest of the planet. Well, most of my focus has been on looking at species interactions, mm -hmm. primarily between uh, herbivores and plants in tundra and mountain environments. Right. And uh, we're getting increasingly interested, or I'm becoming increasingly interested in how they adapt, how those interactions mm -hmm. are influenced by the environmental changes that right. we're observing. Yeah. So cl and climate change. Climate change, but, but more specifically, the changes in snow cover. Mm. Snow is an insulator. Yeah. Uh, during the long winter season. Uh, it's a reservoir of moisture for supporting plant growth and, yeah. and uh, uh, soil activity. The persistence of snow, the phenology of snow, the depth of snow, the way that snow changes, the physical changes in snow yeah. over time are, are, uh, are I think, um, at least in my experience, are drivers of many of the things that are happening in plant communities or how they affect both vertebrate and invertebrate species and their mm -hmm. ability to access resources or be sheltered yeah. from the more extreme environments. And those changes in snow are really, um, just like we're seeing melting sea ice, melting glaciers and thawing permafrost, that's another part of the cryosphere that has a whole, that, that precipitates a whole variety of feedback uh, influences on the rest of the environment. So a place like Cambridge Bay is a really uh, interesting environment to study those interactions and the influence of things like snow yeah. on ecosystem and community processes. There's a wide variety of herbivores, muskox, caribou, hares, lemmings, geese, and a reasonably well-documented uh, invertebrate fauna as well. Yeah. Um, and we know as things warm up in summer that the Although invertebrate herbivory is fairly low mm -hmm. in, in the Arctic compared to other biomes, uh, it does increase almost exponentially as, as things uh, warm yeah. up. So, so this is, a, and, and we have a lot of environmental monitoring that's helping us to understand what's happening with snow mm -hmm. in this environment. So I'm hoping that we can uh, initiate some studies to, yeah. to, to look at those processes and those will complement work that my colleagues are doing in other parts of the Arctic as well. Well, I was just talking to someone in town about fishing, because yeah, I like to fish. Yeah. Um, but they were saying there was a lack of snow last year. And the, so the ice actually became much thicker because there was no snow insulating that ice. Right? So we were, yeah, you know, we went out fishing April, May, yeah. lovely time of year. Uh -huh. But everyone was putting their last little extensions onto yeah. the augers, you know, and you'd get through it. Uh, Kittigak Lake, you know, and you'd have maybe a centimeter of, you know, yeah. of a play on a two meter auger, yeah, yeah. right, to get yeah. through. And you're not just making one hole. This is uh, a physical effort to just get through the ice. Yeah, amazing. And, and there's other things, you know, we had a researcher from Shikudami here just mm. a few weeks ago looking at what's happening in the water mm. under the ice now that it's formed in some of the lakes right. around here that, uh, that are char lakes. And one of the things they've observed is that the oxygen levels in some of those lakes are at closer to springtime levels 
than what you typically see Interesting. this time of year. And it could be because we have more algal blooms and things like that with these warm summers. Wow. So you get different processes occurring in the sediments that affects the water column. And once the ice is over the top, then the gas exchange is limited. Right. Um, Which, th- these are things we're going to start to monitor yeah. uh, over the course of this season. You know, much of the time we we design very carefully experiments and observations, but some of the most interesting studies are those that mm-hmm. are opportunistic. And because Charles is here, we're open year-round, fantastic research techs, and yeah. and uh, and uh, we can support researchers and their observations even when they're not here yeah. throughout the year. And, th- and that's one of our goals, to expand our ability to contribute to science, you know, on a 365-day basis rather than just uh, periodically when people come up from somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, just anecdotally, I mean, are, are summers in your experience, are they unusually warm up here now? Or So I think the, the more obvious changes are in the shoulder seasons. Mm, interesting. And particularly in the fall. Yeah. Um, and so last year, for example, freeze-up was really late, you know, into October, even a month late. Um, that creates all sorts of challenges for getting around and mm-hmm. traveling. But uh, this year was a bit more normal. There's a lot of variability. So this is one of the things that that's a challenge in studying what the impacts of climate change and, mm. and warming will be in these environments is uh, there's natural variability in stochasticity. Um, we have extreme events that you need to put into context. Mm-hmm. But there is this trajectory, you know, over time. And that's a that's a challenge where we don't have long time series. You know, we the signal to noise right. in 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 making those observations. So I think one thing that that um, that becomes very valuable again is the local knowledge and indigenous yeah. and Inuit knowledge. Talking yeah. to elders, people that are you know um, hunters that have years of experience right. and their narrative about the changes yeah. uh, is really important in trying to establish whether. Current conditions are very different from a baseline, or it's just, you know, uh, this year was a bit different from the year before. But I think, you know, overall, um, we're seeing uh, the changes, the largest changes in the spring Mm -hmm. and the fall time associated with with, uh, melt and uh, freeze up. Yeah, fascinating. I I mean, just sort of a big, bigger item one was uh, just talking to people in town was uh, uh, grizzlies up here, and actually grizzlies yeah. overwintering on the island too. Like that's right. Well, which, grizzlies in 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 uh, in the water, uh, yeah. killer whales, orcas, yeah. showing up, right? Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. So the whole um, the whole food web, yeah, is is changing both yeah. both in the in the water and uh, and on land. Yeah, yeah. In terms of this place and your work here, and you know, we're talking about climate, and there's certainly a lot of concerns. And we know the Arctic is being hit harder than anywhere else in mm-hmm. the world right now, definitely by s- several exponential degrees. Um, what what gives you hope? I have a lot of hope. I have hope uh, in the next generation. You know, my kids and yeah. the younger kids. Yeah. Um, that's why we invest and we'll be continuing to invest a lot in in uh, in education and outreach mm-hmm. um, uh, involving youth. Um, I think some of the – we've turned the corner on whether there's technologies that can reduce our reliance on um, fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. We can get – we can start to get emissions down. 
in the Arctic, that's a real challenge right. Right, at the moment. And it's not sort of fiddling around the edges with a yeah. few solar panels. It's, it's a state change right. in, in the type of uh, ways that we can use uh, green technologies right. to reduce emissions. So, you know, at a global scale, um, that's really important. That's what will put us on a different trajectory. Right. But in terms of adaptation, we're, we're – we're doing okay as well, I think, yeah. in, in recognizing that there's some big challenges yeah. um, and that there's a sustained effort. Right. And this is going to be something that, yeah. you know, isn't going to change. It's it's a multi-generational effort to yeah. to realize that um, the yeah. changes on the planet are – now, some of those would are, occur anyway over time. Mm-hmm. But there's things that humans are doing to the climate system that – are going to have adverse effects on everybody. I think we recognize those now. And I think the challenge function of how to address those right. is being taken seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just talking about the tra- those tra- sort of transitions, I mean, up here, a, a lot of electricity is generated by diesel. And mm-hmm. w- so what are, I mean, what do you see as alternatives emerging for that? So there's a number of things. So di- that, that, that's going, diesel will be a part of the mix in the north. Oh, for a long always. time because yeah. the, the important thing is reliability yeah. of yeah, a yeah. power supply. Mm-hmm. And I think with things like, you know, we're doing work with uh, with solar, with wind, mm-hmm. uh, biofuels, mm-hmm. tidal. There's potential for geothermal uh, and other types of alternative energies. Um, but a lot of it comes back to the way that buildings are constructed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, conservation of... Yeah of the energy that is being produced. Uh, this comes back to things like building codes or the materials that are being used. And a lot of the new construction in the north uh, is, is, is taking advantage of those right. uh, uh, ways of, of conserving yeah. energy. And then, you know, on a smaller scale, uh, being able to adopt some of the green tech mm-hmm. that, that, um, and green tech solutions that, that uh, can reduce emissions, but there's things we're interested in like uh, EVs. Mm-hmm. And the North may not seem like the most obvious place for an EV. Yeah, yeah. But uh, battery-powered snowmobiles. Huh, interesting. We have battery-powered uh, um, fat bikes yeah. that we're testing. Yeah. Um, those things uh, are getting to a point, and this is why we're testing them, because right. they're, they're probably not quite there yet. Yeah. But I think they're getting to a point where they're reliable enough. Yeah that they could be adopted across the north where, uh, you know, in Canada, 4% of emissions are from off-road vehicles. Right. And that's even higher in the north. Right. There's really no road network, especially right. in Nunavut. So um, so I think the north can be a, an, ado- an early adopter right. of those sorts of things. That has all sorts of other advantages as well. You don't need to buy fuel. Right. Reduces the amount of noise around town, yeah. things like that. Like, the, you know, and it's... it's uh, you know, can we get charging stations out on the land? Those mm. sorts of things. Yeah. I, th- those are, they may seem like small pieces, but once you get the ball rolling yeah. and uh, demonstrate that they're reliable uh, for the ways that people will use them, yeah. um, then uh, then I think it just takes off. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's about battery life, basically, though, isn't it? Like yeah, that? and there's a lot happening around that. Yeah. Um, uh, what we need to show is those things can work under the, yeah. more extreme yeah. environmental conditions. Yeah. That, yeah. That are, and it won't be for everything, right? Yeah. But, um, but I think those can, that, that can go a long way towards making a big difference. Right, right, right. Shorter trips even, yeah. If yeah. You're just yeah. 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 Um, great. Can you think of, um, like, what's a favorite, like, moment that you've had here 
like whether it's out on the land or in, in your office. Let's go out on the land, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think for me, the, the favorite moment I've had is, is uh, climbing up the first time I climbed up uh, Oviuk, okay, Mount Pelly. Yeah. yeah. And w- looked out over the whole landscape. Yeah. Town and the lakes and all around. Yeah. And just for the, yeah, the, the, you, you fly over it when you're coming into town and things like that. But, but actually, and it's only 211 meters, you right. know, it's, but a mountain is, you know, yeah. however you want to define it. And uh, I've spent a lot of time in mountains. And when I, the first time I, I, I went up there and it took me a long time before I, I found a moment to, yeah. to go out and do that. But, uh, but for me, that just sort of laid out the, the whole area. Yeah. You know, um, uh, under, you know, a gaze where you can just do that 360 at the, you know, at the top and, yeah. and look around. And, and yeah, no, that, that, that for me was, was, uh, was the moment I felt like I was here. Yeah. It's a different beauty up here, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. It really is. Yeah. I, I, what struck me most when I got up here, and we're in theory almost in the long night, I guess, or, but just the, the, the color in the sky is just stunning. And when we first got here, it almost, there's the reflection of the sky into the snow and yeah. just, yeah, the yeah. blending of light is. Yeah, no, you think, uh, you think, oh, the sun's gone. It's going to be dark. Yeah. No, it's not dark. There's, so I, I discovered last year all the different types of twilight, you know, aeronautical twilight and civil twilight. And they all have slightly different yeah. timelines and definitions. But but the the color is, is exactly right. Yeah. It's uh the, the burgundies and purples and yeah deep deep crimsons that you don't see when you know you only see when the the, the incident radiation is kind of just at that angle right right yeah uh, uh, in the atmosphere and and uh, yeah it's beautiful the, the, the air, even even though uh, there's only a few minutes of that yeah <laughs> around solstice it uh, it it's pretty I, I, it's delightful I, I yeah well the other thing I found too is you appreciate when the sun's up. You absolutely yeah, appreciate it absolutely. more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get on a very different, uh, your body gets on a very, very different cycle yeah. when the, the sun's up all the time. And, and you have to push a little bit harder to keep going when, yeah. when the sun goes down at, uh, at noon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is where we are. Yeah. Well, listen, David, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate having you here. Yeah. I, well, I appreciate the invite up here as well. well. I'm so glad you came. We'll be back in Cambridge Bay for our next episode We'll have some amazing storytelling by two young Inuit men who took part in a podcasting workshop I ran while I was there. Hello, everybody. My name is Sinclair Lyle, and I would like to welcome you guys to the Red and Green Show. And me, Tyler Aglagoitok, we're here in Cambridge Bay, Nunavut, and today we're going to talk about hunting. You won't want to miss this one. And remember, if you like this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps people to find these interviews. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us in this, it means that or history is very strong. Every little over every inch of the country that it could be, we we're hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, well, I guess 165 or so. Yeah, shrimp, fish swimming around outside. It's just fabulous here. Well, I'm a first for Canada.